after a very busy four episode July, August may have seemed like a bit of a dry spell with only the one episode. But we'll launch into episode 67 and get September off to a good start. Last you heard, I said, dun dun dun! Foreshadowing Bernd Balker's knowledge that Floyd Bennett and Richard Bird probably never flew to the North Pole. Bird's navigational log from the pole flight went to the National Geographic Society for vetting and no one found anything untoward. In spite of the short flight time, which required strong tailwinds be factored into the calculations made during the 600 nautical mile flight northward, which would compound any drift from track, Bird had to factor into the dead reckoning calculations he made using the sun compass on account of magnetic compasses responding to the extreme variation in the Earth's magnetic field experienced that far north, and his sextant being broken during the flight. The committee appointed by the Society trustees found the log all above board and that Bird, and therefore Merica, were awesome and no one saw anything wrong with the vested interest the National Geographic Society might have in Bird's success, what with their having contracted with Bird to provide articles and images for the sales boost that coverage of his polar flight promised their magazine. Rodman Wanamaker, son of John Wanamaker, founder of a, by then waning, department store chain, paid Bird $30,000 to house the Josephine Ford at two of his establishments to draw crowds, hiring Bert Balkin to interpret the display. During his first days in the USA, Balkin was billeted with a National Guard squadron at Miller Field, where he was allowed access to the US Army Air Corps fighters of the day in a manner I can't imagine happening now. Hey, mind if I jump in the F-22? I can't find reference to what the National Guard squadrons were flying at the time, but I'm putting my money on Boeing P-26 P-shooters, and will happily take corrections from the aviation obsessive playing along at home. Balkan joined the Association of Quiet Birdmen, an aviators collective he was introduced to by one of its founders, Bird's PR man, Harry A. Bruno. Bruno was engaged in almost every major American aviation milestone of the era, helping Anthony Fokker get a toehold in the US market and kicking off the Ford Reliability Competition, among others. The Quiet Birdmen, a Mason-style secret club kicked off by war veteran pilots in 1921, introduced Balkan to Jimmy Doolittle, Carl Spatz and General Billy Mitchell, pilots with whom Balkan would discuss the future of aviation, helping him form ideas about polar air routes that would later bear fruit that continues to throw shade on anything Bird ever achieved. It was also at a Quiet Birdman dinner that Balkan met Anthony Fokker, who offered him a job any time he felt like turning up at the Fokker factory. After a month of answering questions about the Fokker F7 to department store patrons, Bird's outstanding debts from the expedition were settled, and Balkan was let off the hook. Bird immediately turned his attention to the seven years unclaimed Ortag Prize, a proffered $25,000 for the first non-stop flight specifically between Paris and New York, or New York and Paris, depending on how you preferred your prevailing Atlantic winds. As Bird began making arrangements to make an attempt on the Paris flight, Harry Bruno was pushing that he set out on a tour of the nation in the Josephine Ford on Harry Guggenheim's dollar. Guggenheim directed, among other things, the Guggenheim Fund for the Promotion of Aeronautics and offered good coin for prominent pilots to fly over the USA and encourage national consciousness of air travel. Bird sent Bennett and Balkan. 
It was during this extensive experience with that particular airframe that Balkan made comprehensive records of airspeed and fuel consumption that sowed the seed of doubts in his mind regarding the North Pole flight. Well, actually that seed was sown when the flight arrived in Spitsbergen hours ahead of its predicted return, and Bennett made some dark remarks about the alleged achievement. So the nationwide promotional tour aboard the Josephine Ford put the sown seed in a grow house with a moist, warm, high carbon dioxide atmosphere and halogen lights, and it grew into a tall and vigorous plant. Comparing notes on delivering the Josephine Ford to the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, at the end of the two-month tour, both Bennett and Balkan measured the average flying speed of the aircraft at 70 knots. 20 knots slower than Hubert Wilkins measured the flying speed of his slightly more advanced model Fokker F7, and 30 knots slower than Bird needed it to achieve for a still-air flight to the Pole and back to Spitsbergen in the time Balkan recorded for the flight on the day and the Josephine Ford was only lightly loaded during its US tour. Join the dots there. Balkan certainly did. If you ever find yourself in Detroit, I highly recommend a visit to the Henry Ford, where in addition to the Josephine Ford, you'll find the Rosa Parks bus, the original Oscar Mayer hot dog mobile, and a Ford trimotor called the Floyd Bennett, which we'll give some attention to in further episodes of the series and a wide range of other machines that came from the factories of, or caught the attention of, Henry or Edsel Ford and their successors. The Josephine Ford display doesn't attempt to sugarcoat Bird's achievement, and Balkan's role in assuring they actually got off the ground receives the attention his expertise and generosity warrant. My father-in-law lives in Dearborn, and if your visit coincides with one of mine, I'll sort you out with a coffee and we'll visit the museum together. Hit me up when your travels take you to Motown, and we'll see if they coincide with my own. If you already live in Detroit, then all you have to do is wait for me to show up, and we'll make it a High Latitudes Aviation Appreciation outing to remember. And then lunch at Meat Cutters down near Eastern Market, in memory of my brother-in-law Pat, who knew all the best places to go. Balkan headed to Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, to take up Anthony Fokker's job offer, while Floyd Bennett joined Bird's preparations to fly one of Fokker's trimotors, a custom-built, long-distance, one-off airframe, to Paris to claim the Orteg Prize. Bird's project receiving backing from Rodman Wanamaker. Edsel Ford, while working to make his airframes competitive with Fokker's, still couldn't offer a model to match the range of the standard Fokker F7, let alone the one designed specific to Bird's brief. True to Henry Ford's manufacturing philosophy, Edsel didn't want to disrupt the production line with one-offs, and adding extra fuel tanks was deemed an expensive modification the customer can make after market, if they so chose, where Fokker was willing to give the customer what they wanted at a price they could afford in order to make the sale. Both business models have their capitalist merits, but Fokker's was the one more likely to get the headlines associated with breaking records and achieving firsts. Balkan began work on the production line where Fokker's chief engineer, Robert Nurdun, a name with sturdy high-latitudes airframes associations that won't be lost in the aviation buffs among the listeners, spotted Balkan admiring one of the Fokker universals. Nurdun invited Balkan to take the machine for a flight, and the extensive handling report the Norwegian wrote up afterwards caught Nurdun's, and from their Fokker's, attention. No one previously realised exactly how much experience Balkan had as a test pilot with the Horton Naval Aircraft Factory, and from the opportunity Nordoen gave him, 
Balkan elevated himself off the factory floor and into a test pilot's position. In the northern autumn of 1926, Fokker sent Balkan and three company mechanics on a secondment to Western Canada Airways, who sent the Fokker team to crash sites by dog sled to repair and fly out two of their three Fokker Universals. Balkan ended up staying on with Western Canada Airlines for several months, applying his skills flying on instruments to put gold prospectors and their equipment on new strikes in northern Ontario. The secondment lasted through the summer of 1927, with the Universals trading skis for floats as the northern waterways melted, Balkan flying on in conditions that put his colleagues, who were mostly of the contact navigation school, out of contention. Balkan was, at this point, the most experienced high-latitudes pilot on the planet and would remain so for some time. We now turn back to pay some attention to what Wilkins was up to at the same time. With fuel already in place, a smaller team headed to Fairbanks in March 1927 and began assembling two new Stinson biplanes, which Wilkins named Detroit News 1 and Detroit News 2. He also cannibalised the two Fokkers, using the wing of the tri-motor, Sands, Port and Starboard motors, to replace the broken wing of the single-engine Model 4, but the resulting Frankenstein's airframe crashed during test flights and never flew again. The wing and fuselage of the F-7 would go on to a new lease of life, but more on that later. The two Stinsons flew six men over the mountains to Barrow on the 29th of March, and on the 31st, Wilkins and Eilson flew north. Five hours after takeoff, the engine began to run rough, then stopped completely. Eilson dived the Stinson to keep the airspeed high enough to make the propeller windmill, making it possible to restart it when he worked enough frantic pilot magic to clear the worst of the problems that caused the sudden quiet. Eilson made a landing on smoothish sea ice and set to work writing the trouble, cleaning the fuel lines and carburetor, and checking the spark plugs before the engine cooled to the point they wouldn't get it started again. Meanwhile, Wilkins took a sextant shot to make a correction on the position derived by dead reckoning. Once he had their location, 77 degrees 45 minutes north, 175 degrees west, he used a detonator lowered below the sea ice to perform a sonic sounding or sonar ping. The small explosion took 7.3 seconds to return an echo from the seafloor. Even without an approximate vertical profile of temperature and salinity against which to calibrate the varying speed of sound as the vibration descended and ascended through the water, 7.3 seconds represented some deep water, around 3,000 fathoms, or 5.5 kilometres in the new money. Eilson got the Stinson's engine going again, but Wilkins called on him to stop it so further soundings could be heard. Concerned that they wouldn't get the engine going again if they faffed about, Eilson joined Wilkins on the ice and made three further soundings to reassure Wilkins his measurement wasn't in error. Of the three, only one proved useful, but the reading came back as 7.25 seconds. Pretty close to Wilkins' mark, a 0.05 seconds difference is forgivable when you're setting off explosives and pressing stopwatch buttons manually. In what I read as Hubert Wilkins' single most important contribution to our present understanding of our planet, he and Eilson determined that the Arctic lay atop water too deep for a continent to lie in the far north. Peary's observations were incorrect. Eilson did get the Stinson started, 
which is why we know about their discovery. Further rough running required a second landing for further mid-journey engine maintenance. With a headwind eating into their speed over the ground, they flew on into the night, Wilkins leaning forward over the fuel tank to shine a small light on the compass and communicating course corrections to Eilson through taps to the appropriate shoulder. The third and final landing of the flight occurred 120 miles shy of Barrow when the Stinson ran out of fuel. Descending blind through a dense storm, holding the aircraft level and on the glide path on instruments, Eilson made a dead stick landing, dead stick referring to any aircraft landing without the reassuring ability to abort a dodgy approach, go round and try again, that is offered by a working engine. Eilson pulled this off at night in a blizzard. The landing smashed the Stinson skis, but the pair were uninjured and spent the night in the undamaged fuselage. Morning light revealed how lucky the blind landing actually was. The Stinson barely missed being smashed into an ice ridge. Wilkins, trained for years under Stephenson's guidance in Arctic survival, his former leader's one area of competence, wasn't worried about their situation. He took his time preparing for the trek before the pair began walking across the sea ice, hauling their supplies and gear on a small sledge and making and sleeping in improvised shelters. Eilson marvelled at his friend's ability to build a snow house 12 years after the last time he had need of the skill, and followed carefully in the footsteps, and often in the hand and knee prints, of his seasoned Arctic guide, the pair sometimes crawling across the landscape to avoid putting too great a pressure per unit area on the thin ice they needed to cross. Wilkins went through the ice on one occasion, and Eilson thought his companion went insane as he watched the soaked Wilkins strip naked and begin rubbing his sodden clothing in the snow. The snow absorbed a lot of the water and froze more out, making the process of drying the clothing on Wilkins' body a matter of days, rather than lasting the rest of his life. If faced with the choice between freezing to death in wet clothes and freezing to death, tackle out while trying hard not to freeze to death, I'm with Wilkins. The Barrow team began flying the second Stinson along the coast, hoping for some sign of their companions. But Wilkins knew that without an accurate location, the chances of finding a party on the sea ice were too slim for anyone to risk their necks in search and rescue operations, and left behind explicit orders that no one was to fly over the sea in any such endeavour. After 13 days, Wilkins and Eilson reached the trading post at Beachy Point. An old friend, James Tuckbook, carried word of the survivors toward Barrow with his dog team. Almost three weeks after the radio signal from the Detroit News 1 petered out in radio operator Howard Mason's earphones, Tuckpook's dog team arrived from Beachy Head after a four-day slog at maximum dog sledge speed, bearing the letter from Wilkins and Eilson. The letter requested that Alger Graham fly the Detroit News 2 to collect them at his earliest convenience. On collection from Beachy Point, Eilson's frostbitten hands received treatment saving all but two joints of one finger. Wilkins' competence as an Arctic denizen, if not already established by his three years under Stephenson and 600 mile walk out of the Arctic in the first of a long series of steps to get home to Australia, was etched in stone. The party returned to Fairbanks and mothballed the Stinson and the Fokker components for the winter. 
In Wilkins' words, We begged for money, bought machines, flew them and smashed them, rebuilt them and smashed ourselves. My crooked arm and Eilson's missing finger are mute evidence of the trials endured. Wilkins considered a long-distance flight across the Pacific, perhaps even reaching as far as the Ross Sea, and from there striking out for Graham Land. But the area to the north of Alaska, flown over but not seen by those above the Norge, held his attention. His former plan to fly from Barrow to Spitsbergen came to the fore once more, and he began making preparations. He considered flying solo, the fuel already in place at Barrow, and the simplicity of working on his own and in the case of accident, surviving on his own, gave the idea appeal. With only his own shortcomings to fail him, the weather stood as the only practical barrier, but the social barrier proved the turning point in his thinking on the matter. Without a companion, there could be no corroboration of any claim he might make, or data he might collect. Given that the corroboration Floyd Bennett provided for Bird's North Pole flight amounted to not very much use, I think Wilkins was overcautious but such was the mode of the time, and he was decided on travelling with Eilson once more. The Detroit News didn't want a bar of it, having associated themselves with Wilkins' projects for two years and not gotten a single pole flight for their resources. They signed over the Stinson and agreed to meet any outstanding debts on the understanding that Wilkins not use their name in association with his next project. The Detroit Aviation Society were similarly uninterested in the dogged but undramatic Wilkins' further attempts to actually get on with the business of exploration, where other flyers were making headlines. They refused to offer any support, even though Wilkins' proposed use of another Detroit-made Stinson could work to the benefit of the city's brand. Wilkins' West Coast girlfriend, Lura B. Shrek, helped put the Australians, Charles Kingsford Smith and Charles Ulm, in touch with Wilkins and arranged the sale of the Trimotor Fokker for a flight from San Francisco to Australia, stopping in Hawaii and Fiji en route. My sources diverge at this point, some stating that Anthony Fokker agreed to overhaul the hard-worked airframe, others stating that it was Boeing that took on the job. Either way, the Australians happily paid 15,000 US dollars for what they named the Southern Cross going on to make the historic Pacific Crossing and many other trailblazing flights with the machine, which now resides in a hangar of its own near the entrance to Archerfield Airport in Brisbane, with, last time I saw it, which I'll grant you was a long time ago, no mention of its history in the north. Wilkins also sold the remaining Stinson biplane from his previous season in Barrow. He paid half of the money from the sale to the Detroit Aviation Society to cover part of the money owed them, and was keen to buy a Stinson monoplane for his third Arctic aviation project when a zippy-looking red plane, a Lockheed Vega, the first of its kind, caught his attention from his hotel window. I can understand his sudden fascination. Compared to everything flying at the time, the Lockheed Vega looked like it came straight out of a Buck Rogers comic. The Lockheed brothers, recently having changed the spelling of their name to match its pronunciation, after years of correcting people for calling them Loghead, worked out how to cantilever the wing from the fuselage, and the resulting absence of wing struts helped make the Vega fast, and it looked it too. To clinch the deal, a Vega worked out cheaper than the Stinson and could fly further. 
Wilkins ordered one and asked Arson to fly it for him. Given that the first example disappeared over the Pacific while en route to Hawaii, and the second crashed just as he arrived at the Lockheed test airfield, Eilson gets my nod as an extremely game punter by climbing in the third Vega and putting it through its paces. During the test series, Wilkins and Eilson ironed out a flaw in the fuel feed which may have contributed to the unhappy fates of the two preceding airframes, which also caused Wilkins' machine to make a heavy landing which bent the undercarriage a bit while Eilson was giving Lura Shrek a joy flight. Wilkins' third Arctic aviation expedition was smaller than the previous one which was smaller than the first one. With no radio crew, sledge team, tractors or journalists along, Wilkins painted Detroit News, Wilkins Expedition, on both sides of the fuselage anyway, for which the media company gave cautious thanks, but no money, and it arrived in crates at Fairbanks on the 26th of February 1928. But it's time we caught up with Bird back in 1927 for a bit. Preparing to make a solo test flight in the new trimotor commissioned by Bird, Anthony Fokker grudgingly agreed to Bird's request that Floyd Bennett and radio operator George Noville ride along. At the last minute, Bird also climbed aboard. With all these punters up front, the aircraft was nose heavy. Fokker couldn't trim for level flight, and the landing approach required he haul back on the yoke like his life depended on it, because it did. The plane crashed onto the runway, winding up upside down, Floyd Bennett receiving fractures to his skull and one of his legs, and a punctured lung. Bird, a broken arm, which he claimed he set himself on the way to hospital, and Noville, minor internal injuries which he recovered from quickly. Fokker blamed Bird for loading the aircraft out of trim. Bird countered that Fokker's behaviour after the crash constituted cowardice unbecoming a gentleman writing later that Fokker leapt from the cockpit once the aircraft touched ground, leaving everyone else to their fate, a version of events Fokker contested, claiming that with the aircraft on its back, he wasn't in a position to leave anywhere and that Bird was simply making shit up. But Fokker's behaviour after the crash doesn't exempt Bird from blame at making the aircraft unflyable. While Fokker made repairs to the airframe, word went north to Balkan, by then coming to the end of his secondment with Western Canadian Airlines. With Bennett hospitalised, his former co-pilot Acosta took his seat and a new co-pilot was needed. Balkan accepted that role. Alexa, play Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. Balkan, well familiar with Fokker's systems, fulfilled Fokker's test flight scheme on the repaired aircraft named America and took it on its positioning flight to Roosevelt Field. Fokker wanted Balkan in the left seat, as he could fly on instruments, making navigation by dead reckoning possible over the trackless sea, and making flying safe if visibility decreased due to cloud or fog. The sensations impressing themselves on a human body's sense of balance and orientation while in flight, rapidly lead to disorientation when you can't see where you're going. We didn't evolve to move in three dimensions out of sight of the ground, and our senses betray us when we try doing exactly that, as regularly occurs in flying outside of visual flight rules conditions, which was often in the weather and places under discussion this episode. Jimmy Doolittle, who is far more famous for his aircraft carrier launched land plane raid on Tokyo in the Second World War than he is for any of his other achievements in aviation, 
perfected blind flying techniques in a series of experimental flights made possible by the Guggenheim Fund, kicking off in 1929, eventually making a takeoff from one airfield, navigating to another airfield, and landing safely, entirely without use of visual references outside the cockpit of his consolidated NY2 biplane. Until the instruments developed in Doolittle's project and their application in instrument flight rules flying were perfected, only the very best pilots could keep an aircraft in the air after entering cloud, let alone navigate effectively. Balkan was one of those pilots, where Bert Acosta freely admitted he got lost if he couldn't follow the roads and railway lines used in contact flying, and he very nearly crashed the America after flying into a cloud layer. Rodman Wanamaker insisted Acosta do, or at least be credited for, the flying, because it wouldn't do to have a foreigner take any of the glory from his investment. As the plane sat, waiting for weather good enough for Acosta not to crash into the sea and kill everyone, Balkan applied for US citizenship on Fokker's insistence and a family friend's assurance that it was the correct move, in spite of Balkan's personal reservations about what felt like turning his back on his homeland. With the test series complete and the Fokker ready to go, nothing happened. Fokker tore his hair out at the excuses Bird kept finding to delay. Meanwhile, French war veteran pilots, Charles Nungesser and Francois Colli, were gearing up to make the crossing from France to the USA, and two other local teams eager to snag the Orteig Prize made their preparations. Clarence Chamberlain trained as a pilot through the Army Signals Corps, but joined too late to deploy to the Great War. He spent the 20s barnstorming and flying mail. He flew a specially made Wright Belenka above Long Island for 50 hours in company with Bert Acosta to prove the airframe had the endurance to cross the Atlantic in preparation for his attempt. Male pilot and US Army Air Corps Reserve officer Charles Lindbergh was also ready to go with his custom-built Ryan. Chamberlain was all set to get moving when the financial backer of his effort, Charles Levine, a scrap metal merchant turned aviation magnate and owner of the Columbia Aircraft Corporation which built the Wright Belanca WB2, threw a spanner in the works. Levine had already replaced Acosta with Lloyd Bertard, but then decided he wanted to fly in the right seat himself. Feeling cheated of a date with destiny, Bertard took out a court injunction against the flight, preventing the Belanca from taking off. Nungesser and Colli made the first move, leaving Paris on the 8th of May, pushing their Lavasseur PL-8 single-engine biplane into strong westerlies, and that was the last that was heard of them. Frustrated by the delays caused by the legal injunction, Chamberlain gave his weather charts of the Atlantic to Lindbergh, who, on the 20th of May, boarded his aircraft with some sandwiches and a thermos of coffee, took off and landed in Le Bourget Airport 33 and a half hours later, winning the Orteg Prize and experiencing levels of fame never seen before, causing much distress for the retiring young working-class man and eventually resulting in tragedy when his two-year-old son was murdered in an attempt to kidnap the child to hold him for ransom. Two weeks later on the 4th of June, with the court injunction from Bertard dropped on special appeal by the aircraft's designer, Giuseppe Belanca, Chamberlain made the second crossing, the first to carry a passenger, Charles Levine having climbed aboard at the last moment. They spent 42 hours in the air, landing twice in Germany, 
once at Eisleben because they ran out of fuel, and the second time because the people who gave them fuel on their first landing also gave them dud directions, before finally finishing their journey of 42 and a half hours in the air in Berlin, where 150,000 locals greeted them. Levine shot himself in the foot by screwing around with the crew for the flight. He even considered chucking Chamberlain, because he thought the barnstormer looked too homely to fill the role of heroic trailblazer, and it's by such trite concerns Lindbergh had the field effectively to himself and got through first. Levine hoped the endurance of the right Belenka would make up for not getting the Ortag and the associated fame. That you probably never heard of him or Chamberlain, who was one of the most accomplished and competent pilots of his day, where you likely have heard of Lindbergh, demonstrates how well this gambit paid off for him. Bird delayed further, his line remaining that he was never a competitor for the Ortag Prize, but I think that was a means to distance himself from the fact that he was a white-knuckle flyer. Bird received a great deal of hate mail for his delays, much of it calling him a coward, demonstrating that while the internet has made it faster and easier to be an asshole, it didn't kick off the phenomenon. I don't think Bird was wrong to be anxious about flying. He saw colleagues die in training accidents in Pensacola, and served on a Navy Accident Investigation Board, within which he was exposed to the pulpy, bloody mess that air accidents leave in their wake. The regularity with which aviators disappeared or blew up or died in the mangled wreckage of their machines during this period makes me extremely choosy about what airframes from that era I'm willing to fly in and Bird was putting those airframes at the edge of their capabilities by taking them on the long flights his projects required. The disappearance of Nongesser and Koli can't have done much to settle his nerves, but here's the hook. He was scared and he went anyway. Imbeciles can face danger with no fear, but an absence of fear isn't the same thing as courage. I don't much like Bird, but I do think he faced his fears. Perhaps not always with Nansen or Scott levels of dignity, but he faced them nonetheless. Experiencing genuine existential dread and going ahead regardless is what I perceive as courageous. I read Bird's decision to use a Fokker trimotor as a means to give himself plausible distance from the other starters. He wasn't competing for the Ortig, he was hauling the first airmail across the ocean. Bird was sworn in as a US Post representative for the purpose and demonstrating the possibilities of air travel. He was also putting better able pilots in the cockpit, a radio set and an operator in the fuselage, and survival equipment that might have saved the lives of Nongesser and Koli had their aircraft been able to carry it. The Fokker was a bet later each way. If he was the first, he could claim the Ortag. If he wasn't the first, he could claim he was never interested in it. A cold reader would recognise the gambit as analogous to the disappearing negative. Fokker, never the calmest punter to begin with, got so frothingly mad at Bird's delays that he began talking about buying the aircraft back and flying it to France himself. Finally, on the 29th of June, with Acosta and Balkan at the yokes, Bird at the navigator's table, Neville at the radio and Fokker on the ground foaming at the mouth and cursing in Dutch, at least in my imagination that's how it looks. The America took off, using an earthwork ramp to get its first kick of speed, and headed east. Bird's account of the flight has him calmly making his sightings and directing the pilots, 
where Balkan recalled Bird quickly losing track of their position and issuing irrational orders that he and Acosta sensibly ignored. Acosta again demonstrated his inability to hold the aircraft on instruments when he put them into a dive after entering cloud while Balkan was trying to find his sandwiches. From that point on, Balkan took all the close weather flying, which was most of it. Holding a course of 108 degrees magnetic, in the absence of anything useful from the navigator's table. Approaching the French coast in the early evening, Bird joined Acosta in the cockpit and sent them following the Seine. Balkan pointed out that a direct bearing for Paris would cut their time by two hours and allow a daylight landing, but Bird, contacted navigator that he was, ignored the advice. They encountered rain as they approached Rouen, requiring Balkan replace Acosta at the controls. As visibility deteriorated, Balkan climbed the Fokker to 4,000 feet on instruments and set a course for Paris, but the city was socked in to the point he didn't feel he could make a safe descent. Balkan set a reciprocal course, picking up VFR conditions at Rouen once more. He tried again for Paris, but the cloud base still wouldn't allow a safe descent. Reciprocal course again, this time with fuel sufficient only to reach the coast. Balkan flew along the coast until he found a lighthouse. He found a nearby beach, but couldn't land because of the fishing boats hauled out there. Balkan indicated a ditching in the sea was their only remaining option, and Bird prepared carbide flares that would burn in the water and offer some visual reference against which Balkan could judge his approach. Throwing them out the window as the starboard engine began to make the first spluttering announcements that it was on the verge of fuel starvation. Balkan made the last turn the aircraft had in it and put the Fokker into the drink, making the first survivable water landing of an aircraft that size that wasn't designed for water landings. Under the sweeping light of the lighthouse, the crew of the America inflated the emergency dinghy and paddled themselves and the mail ashore. The lighthouse keeper of the village, that turned out to be Versemur in Ken, sorted them out with dry clothes and somewhere to sleep. In the morning, they found the America pushed ashore by the tide and the local souvenirring bits of the plane, though the instruments, engines and wing eventually made it back to the USA, the engines going into service with an airline and the wing ending up in the collection of the Smithsonian. The crew of the America were fated by the French and Bird soaked up the adulation heaped on him at receptions and dinners in his honour. Jeff Maynard notes that Bird's opinion of himself began to take on messianic characteristics either at this point or when Bird reviewed their time in France. He quotes Bird's book, Skyward, covering the Polar and the Atlantic flight, as featuring a photograph of the Americans visiting French airmen crippled during the Great War, which is captioned after Bird's greeting, one man, a cripple since the war, rose up and walked. Yeah, I'm feeling it, Frenchman. I'd get off my deathbed to avoid listening to some of the blowhards I've encountered over the years too. The crew of the America returned to New York to the standard parade and city hall welcoming ceremony care of Mayor Jimmy Walker. And it's back to Umberto Nobile in Italy. Pissed off at that exploring Johnny-come-lately Amundsen trying to cash in on the success of his airship, Nobile began making preparations for another lighter-than-air Arctic foray. He would fly to the Pole from Spitsbergen, 
where the infrastructure from the previous flight would serve his purpose as well, and decide which way to proceed south based on the prevailing winds. The sort of plan you might make if intending a picnic along the Amalfi Coast. Just see how the mood and the weather takes you. Dumbass. Mussolini, having milked the success of the Norge for all it was worth, didn't see any merit in a second voyage and refused to offer his personal endorsement of Nobile's proposal, though the government did send the naval vessel, the Tita di Milano, to Spitsbergen on a training mission, and it just happened to be carrying spare parts and support materials in case an airship happened to be passing and needed something. The Italian Geographic Society, previously indifferent to Nobile's efforts, got behind this new, all-Italian project. Pope Pius gave Nobile a wooden cross to drop at the North Pole, just in case there was some ice in need of reminding of the alleged sacrifice of an innocent to atone for things it wasn't connected with. But getting papal approval to the extent you receive a wooden cross to place at point X probably wasn't that hard in those days. Nobile's new airship, the Italia, designed with many of the Norge's high latitudes shortcomings in mind, left Milan on the 15th of April 1928. Arriving in Spitsbergen weeks later than expected after mechanical troubles over Germany forced Nobile to land and arrange repairs, the captain of the Città di Milano refused to put men ashore to help guide the Italia into the Norge's former hangar in Kings Bay. Captain Giuseppe Romagna, perhaps reticent to assist Nobile on instructions from his superiors, or perhaps just an asshole, responded to Nobile's radio request that his sailors were on site to take meteorological measurements not to act as airship ground crew. With his airship behaving as an airship will as the wind starts backing, Nobile called to his brother, Amadeo, who sailed independently to Spitsbergen to support his sibling, to get the miners. The Norwegians, hard case on two fronts, being both coal miners and living in Spitsbergen, Happily down tools, as you likely would do if you were a coal miner in Spitsbergen faced with anything more diverting than rocks and coal and back-breaking hard work, and helped tow the airship into its hangar before the weather deteriorated any further. Captain Romagna informed Nobile that he and his crew would not act to support the flight without express permission from Rome, which he then failed to request. What do I look like? A guy who's not lazy? The Italia made two forays out of Kings Bay before Nobile set out on the pole flight on the 23rd of May. They reached the pole around midnight, dropped the Pope's cross, sang the fascist anthem and turned back for Kings Bay, but ran into headwinds and burnt through more fuel than expected. Ice, a problem Nobile's modified airship design couldn't counter, began forming on the airframe and the control surfaces began to freeze in place. Nobile radioed the Città di Milano of their difficulties, and Captain Romagna relayed the message to Rome and awaited orders. Uncontrollable, the airship descended, hitting the ice hard enough to shear the gondola from the gas envelope. One crew member, Natalie Ciaccioni, broke a leg, and another was killed on impact. Another six, those working in the envelope, disappeared into the sky with the hydrogen bags when free to the weight of the gondola. Whether they died of hypoxia or above 10,000 feet, froze to death, or returned to Earth at speed as the remnant airship further broke up, is unknown, as nothing was ever found of them or the errant hydrogen balloon that carried them away. 
Nabile rolled on the ground and clutched his shin until the referee awarded him the only sleeping bag. For three days, the seven members of the crew not suffering from broken legs or faking death throes in the only sleeping bag, buttressed their impromptu campsite against the weather and Giuseppe Biaggi tried to raise help on the radio, which was working fine but somehow skipped over the antenna of the Città di Milano where nothing was happening, Captain Romagna still awaiting orders from Rome. A trio set out for the nearest land, around 30 nautical miles distant and receding as the ice followed the currents beneath it. Swedish meteorologist Finn Malmgren, injured in the crash and despairing of their situation, and Italian naval representatives Commander Adalberto Mariano and Captain Filippo Zappi set out on the 30th of May. Ceccioni wanted them to tow him out on a sled he made from the seated position that his broken leg wouldn't allow him to leave, but determined they would raise the alarm and send help, the trio left their six companions in the camp. Marmgren would die on the march out, which would only end on the 12th of July, when the Italians met the Russian vessel, the Crazy, on its way north to do what it could for the stranded airship crew. On the 3rd of June, a Russian farmer and amateur radio operator picked up Biagi's transmissions and relayed them to Rome, and on the 6th, Biagi picked up the first transmission indicating their plight was recognised by the outside world. Rome, unable to ignore the international hue and cry the relayed message caused, sent Major Umberto Maddalena to Spitsbergen in charge of a Sovia Marchetti S-55 flying boat to effect a rescue. Captain Romagna stood by to await Maddalena's arrival and further orders. International offers of assistance caused fascist embarrassment and Mussolini's representatives attempted to dissuade other rescue parties, assuring everyone that between Maddalena and Romagna, Italy had the situation well in hand. Mussolini's influence in the Norwegian Aero Club ensured Amundsen, who'd already resigned from the club in Dudgeon, couldn't access aircraft locally, and he instead joined a French effort. Ellsworth provided funding for the Latham 47 flying boat, commanded by René Gilbode. Amundsen brought along Leif Dietrichsen, and the French and Italian rescue efforts raced to Spitsbergen. The Italians arrived in Kings Bay, but the French did not their non-arrival causing its own emergency response, with aircraft and ships passing between Spitsbergen and Tromso, hoping to find some sign of the Latham and its six occupants. The Italians under Maddalena joined a number of other aviators, among them Hjalmar Risa Larsen, flying to the hotly disputed source of Biaggi's most recent radio transmissions, while Romagna stood by to await further orders. The stranded airship crew heard and saw several of the searching aircraft, but weren't spotted in their turn. They broke open a red dye grenade, used for truthing altitude measurements as the airship floated over the ice, and dyed their tent with the contents. As the batteries of the radio set grew increasingly weak, Biaggi got a transmission through to the Città di Milano of this chromatic development, demonstrating that even a weak signal could successfully hit the sensitive antenna aboard that ship and Romagna stood by to await further orders. On Maddalena's second flight over the ice, Biaggi raised the aircraft by radio and talked his countrymen over the airship crew, but with ice fast all around them, Maddalena couldn't land his aquatic adapted aircraft to effect an extraction. He dropped supplies and equipment, and while I can't find reference to any such behaviour, 
I'm sure Nabile rolled on the ground and clutched his ankle until the referee awarded him a drier and less smelly sleeping bag than the one he'd cadged and remained in for the past three and a half weeks, with his stupid little doggy Tatina. Romagna, by now on tenterhooks of anticipation, stood by awaiting further orders. Swedish aviators, Lieutenants Lundborg and Scheiberg, entered the Spitsbergen Circus in a Swedish Air Force Fokker S6 biplane. Theirs being one of the few aircraft capable of landing on the ice, every other team using flying boats or seaplanes suitable only for water landings, the Swedes were the first to reach the Red Tent Party. Able only to carry one passenger out, Lundborg demanded that passenger be Nobile, allegedly against the airship commander's request that Ceccioni and his broken leg go first. Lundborg deemed Ceccioni too heavy and Nobile finally convinced that working from Spitsbergen and out of his sleeping bag would allow him to better coordinate rescue efforts, boarded the Fokker with his stupid dog Tatina, and the Swede flew him to Riss Island, the Swedish Finnish rescue base of operations. Nobile made his way to Kings Bay. Finding Romagna on standby and awaiting further orders, but otherwise throwing spanners into the efforts of other parties, Nobile made to leave the ship at which Romagna arrested and confined Nobile. The ship's captain determined to stay on standby and await further orders and to maximise the extent to which Nobile could receive Italian opprobrium for his incompetence and cowardice. At this point, the Crazen, a coal-powered icebreaker, was sent to rescue the Italians, an event recounted by Jeff Maynard in Wings of Ice as The Russian government had thrown its bearskin hat into the ring. It entered a tortoise into a race of harebrained ideas. Nice. Wish I'd come up with that. Hairiest of the harebrains, Lundborg returned to the red tent, drunk out of his gourd, alone and incapable of making the landing safely. His Fokker ending up on its nose on the rough ice, its propeller smashed. The Swede joined the red tent denizens until Lieutenant Scheiberg landed safely on the 6th of July in a de Havilland Cirrus moth, far lighter than the Fokker S6 and therefore easier to land on ski undercarriage on the rough ice that wrecked the Fokker. Sobriety may also have had something to do with Scheiberg's success. Lundborg sprinted to the aircraft as Scheiberg came to a stop, vaulted into the empty cockpit and ordered his colleague get them airborne again. The five Italians, six weeks into their icy vigil, carried on their waiting short one idiot Scandinavian. The Crazen, with Mariano and Zappi aboard, recovering from their foot slogging, arrived on the 15th of July and collected the five men, seven and a half weeks after the crash that killed seven of their companions. Nobile urged that searching continue to see if any of the six men carried away by the airship's gas bag survived, but Romagna's orders finally came through, return to Rome. Nobile received a hero's welcome, 200,000 cheering Italians greeting his arrival on the 31st of July, frustrating fascist party plans to paint him as an incompetent coward who deserted his men to their fate. Mussolini did his best to tar Nobile with blame for the accident and its aftermath, and enough tar stuck that Nobile resigned his commission and moved to Russia to work on airships for the Soviets. And while his tarnished reputation received some polish after the fascists were removed from power, accusations regarding his past never fully let him be. Similarly, Mariano and Zappi never fully allayed rumours that they'd fed off Malmgren's corpse, 
perhaps even hastening the demise of the ailing meteorologist to aid their survival. Probably for the best that Ceccioni couldn't convince them to tow him on his sled either way. And it's back to Wilkins and Eilson in Fairbanks. The pair flew the reassembled Vega to Barrow on the 15th of March. The high performance of the new design making easy work of climbing above the Endicott Mountains that the Fockers couldn't fly over while carrying a working load, and which the Stinson had to work hard to surmount. They spent a month waiting for an appropriate weather window, passing the time by clearing the runway after every successive snowfall, Wilkins also spending the time running practice calculations for the complex navigation task he set himself. Where previous flights over the Arctic relied on pointing the aircraft in one direction and holding that course, Wilkins' proposal required a dogleg course to cover the maximum unseen territory and would rely on sextant readings backed up by dead reckoning from headings taken from a magnetic compass. Magnetic compasses do work in the high latitudes, as there's nothing to stop them responding to the Earth's magnetic field. They are problematic for navigation at high latitudes because proximity to the magnetic poles causes rapid changes in local variation from a true north reading. If you know where you are and what variation to expect there, you can calculate the difference and use the resulting information to set your course. But as the voyage would cover 10 time zones worth of longitude and the associated shifts in magnetic variation, Wilkins would need to be shit hot on his dead reckoning and the associated calculations accounting for their moving through the variable magnetic field. He needed to time the shifts from one magnetic footing to another to coincide with their progress along the proposed route. If forced to fly on instruments, any mismatch between their actual and their mapped location would throw ever-increasing deviations from the proposed course into the mix, and the first mistake would likely quickly compound to a last one, unless the visibility cleared enough to allow accurate sextant work. Wilkins would have to watch their speed, drift and timings carefully while Eilson would have to hold their compass course like a lifeline. The advantage of navigating in this manner was they weren't tied to external references. Not relying on a sun compass, they could fly through darkness or storms and hold their track, so long as they held to their instruments, hit their waypoints, and Wilkins ran his sums correctly. Amundsen is alleged to have told Wilkins, What you are trying to do is beyond the possibility of human endeavour. Given the number of previously impossible things Amundsen achieved in his time, if he actually said that, it constituted quite a thing for him to declare. By the time the weather at Barrow cleared, Wilkins could run the calculations for the dead reckoning compass corrections and the sextant shots forwards, backwards and sideways without any reference to the log tables, saving time in the operations and cutting out one of the many factors that might trip them up while fanging through the sky at 120 knots for 2,200 nautical miles. On the 15th of April, they saw their chance and took it. With drift indicator windows on both port and starboard sides of the lower fuselage, and a hole in the fuselage roof just behind the trailing edge of the wing from which to shoot his sextants, note plural, in case one broke, as happened to Bird, Wilkins was well sorted to show the world what a dedicated practitioner of the navigational arts could do while airborne. He had to take several sextant readings and calculate an average due to the vibrations and vagaries of roll, pitch, yaw, heave, surge and sway, all occurring far faster in an aircraft than on a ship. 
any two sightings taken in succession might produce a position varying by as much as two degrees. So Wilkins worked hard at matching what his astronomical corrections added to the picture drawn by his dead reckoning calculations, themselves corrected by regular measurements of drift. After many noisy hours, approaching the northernmost extent of Greenland, Wilkins spotted a storm directly in their path. Consulting Eilson by note, the aircraft being too noisy for even hearty shouting to carry effectively, and the pair being separated by the auxiliary fuel tank between the pilots and the navigators' stations, preventing shouting directly into each other's ears. Wilkins wrote that they were flying over sea ice suitable for a safe landing, but couldn't guarantee they would get airborne again if they landed, but that to fly on with the limited fuel remaining would force them to risk flying through the storm, and that if winds therein threw them off course, they might never sight Spitzbergen. Eilson considered for a minute, and passed back a note that he was more comfortable carrying on, which they did, completing the first heavier-than-air flight over the Arctic, but not without considerable excitement. Knowing they were approaching Spitzbergen and getting low on fuel, Eilson began a nerve-wracking descent through the storm, relying on Wilkins' navigation that they weren't about to enter one of those lumpy clouds with all the rocks in. Eilson hoped the cloud base would allow him enough space to follow the coast, but the storm carried to sea level. He found the coast without becoming part of it, but couldn't fly along it, as keeping it in sight required he fly too close for safety, and flying far enough from it for safety put it out of sight in snow flurries. Salt spray licked up from the surface of the sea began to form a frozen rime on the cockpit glazing, when Eilson spotted through a gap in the precipitation an area flat enough to attempt a landing. He had to bank sharply to avoid hitting a rock ledge as he passed over it, and the manoeuvre almost cost him contact with the landing site. Eilson made two approaches, but each proved too fast to put the Vega down. On the third attempt, the wind swung directly onto the aircraft's nose, giving them a safe flying speed with a low speed over the ground, and Eilson put his machine on the ice with 20 gallons of fuel left in its tanks. The pair set out five days of crook weather, unsure of where they were, beyond being on the west coast of Spitzbergen. They cut as near to a runway as they could with the tools at hand, and attempted to fly out and find a settlement. They very nearly didn't get airborne again. Wilkins had to push the airframe from behind while Eilson opened the throttle, or the Vega just sat in place and vibrated. Wilkins couldn't get back in once the Vega started moving, and Eilson took off alone, only noticing he'd left his navigator behind when banking over the tracks the Vega left in the snow. He landed, and they made another attempt with the same result, though this time Wilkins hung a rope out the fuselage door that he might haul himself back aboard once the Vega was on the move. He found, too late, that his chilled hands couldn't grip the rope sufficient to get inside, and so held on with his teeth as the Vega picked up speed. I think at that point he wasn't thinking things through, as it's unlikely his hands would warm sufficient to help much once he was borne aloft by his dentition, but I can't say my own bloody-mindedness wouldn't have prompted similar action at that point. The slipstream thumped the explorer against the empennage, and Wilkins loosened his teeth in their sockets as he lost his grip. On the third attempt, they made a snow ramp for the Vega's tail, and Wilkins punted the aircraft forward off it using a piece of driftwood for purchase, while hanging half out the side door. This did the trick, and through the clear air the Vega climbed into, they immediately spotted the radio masts at the Green Harbour coal mine. 
they spent their five days blizzard-bound on the shores of Dead Man's Island. Having succeeded where Amundsen first came to grief in his Dorniers and later couldn't see anything from the Norge due to fog, Wilkins' project suddenly leapt from an obscure tale of dogged determination to an extremely newsworthy tale of dogged determination. On wiring the New York Times of their success, Wilkins received an immediate request for 500 words. Before he could prepare the copy and send it, a further request came in for as much material as he could muster. Front page, banner headline in the New York Times, 22nd April 1928. Wilkins flies the Arctic. No new land found. Finally, Wilkins received the coverage his meticulous approach to geographical discovery warranted, but which he never sought. Amundsen is quoted as stating, No flight has been made anywhere at any time which could be compared with it. Nansen called it a splendid achievement. It didn't help Wilkins' capacity to capitalise on his sudden notoriety that the next ship at Green Harbour wasn't due for nine months. Fortunately, their arrival in Green Harbour coincided with the arrival of the Norwegian steamer, the Hobby, in Kings Bay. The Hobby took a charter to provide logistic support for Nobile's project and, having delivered the requisite materials, was looking at an unprofitable voyage back to Norway with its hold empty. The captain of the Hobby radioed the Green Bay station and offered to sail as close to Green Bay as the sea ice might allow and collect Wilkins and Eilson nine months earlier than expected. The aviators leapt at the chance, though they didn't fly at it. On the 10th of May they fired up the Vega and taxied it the 20 nautical miles across the sea ice to meet the ship, which received them and their doughty aircraft and sailed for Tromso. Amundsen hosted them to dinner in his home, during which the news of the Italia's crash came in by telegram. Amundsen mobilised to do what he saw as his arctic duty to someone who never showed him much respect, leading to his death aboard the French Latham 47, as recounted earlier. Wilkins sent word to Rome that he and Eilson would immediately return to Spitsbergen, but received a response that they would not need it, and so carried on to Denmark, Germany and the Netherlands, receiving plaudits and gracious hosting at every stop. It was while on this European triumph that Captain Wilkins received word that the King's birthday honours included a knighthood for him. The pair travelled to England via France and Wilkins received his knighthood and attended many events in his honour. Among them, one hosted by Colonial Secretary Leo Amory, who expressed his imperial avarice in introducing the guest of honour. Not since Balboa stood on a peak at Darien and saw for the first time the broad Pacific, has so significant a new view of the world been spread before human eyes in one day as when Wilkins and Eilson flew in 22 hours across the unexplored Arctic Ocean from America to Europe. Wilkins met with Mawson to request the Australian Ambassador of All Things Antarctic press their government for support of the International Weather Monitoring Service he'd so long advocated. Mawson still bearing ill will over Wilkins' association with Mackay's death under Stephenson, wrote Wilkins off as an amateur and his meteorological proposal as crazy. Wilkins and Eilson sailed on to New York, where Mayor Jimmy Walker awaited with the now well-practiced hero's greetings. Wilkins' logbook went to the American Geographical Society, where the chief surveyor declared the flight track and Wilkins' careful tracking of same an unparalleled feat of precision navigation. 
After 40 years between gongs, the American Geographical Society awarded Wilkins the Samuel B. Morse Gold Medal, the first of 15 scientific awards granted for the flight. And so with that we've finished covering Northern Hemisphere aviation antics and given ourselves a good footing from which to consider Antarctic aviation exploits in coming episodes. After a brief step back in time next episode, to consider some of the whaling and territorial claiming that was going on at the same time that aviation was getting off the ground in the Arctic. My recent trip to Hobart went extremely well, with a lot of oral history recorded with members of the Inari Club, a tour of the Aurora Australis in the care of Michael Goldstein, and some successful and well-attended Antarctic presentations at the Beaker Street Science Bar at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. My trip would have been far less successful and far lonelier without the hospitality and open arms of Colette, Zoe, Margot, Rosie, Lucille, Andy, Adelaide, Brian, Mike and Lauren. Every time I'm in Hobart I ask myself, why don't I move here? And then I remember I married a girl from Detroit who's sick of the cold and Melbourne is probably as far south as I'll ever manage to get her. Hobart's a lovely place, but it's people like you that make me want to move there. Take care and appreciate your coffee. And please get in touch and let me know if my mid-episode joke actually rickrolled anyone. Mm -hmm.